You're listening to The Bookstack with Annie, Nia, and Sydney. Hi, friends. Welcome to the 14th chapter of The Bookstack. I'm Sydney. I'm Nia. And I'm Annie. There's something about the macabre that fascinates humans. With ever-increasing popularity, books, podcasts, TV, and film continue to dive ever deeper into the realm of the criminal and the details of what happened, to whom, where, when, how, and especially why. People are drawn to the stories of criminals. The darker, the more invested they become. To understand, to explain, to see inside the minds of how those who don't follow society's rules really tick. There's a lot of psychology that dives into the psyche of why people are so drawn to the darkness that is true crime. And today's stack is inspired by these shades of darkness as we talk for a second time about true crime. A sequel to the last season's chapter, if you will. Nia, why don't you go ahead and kick us off? Well, it's pretty fitting that I get to go first this time because in chapter four with our last true crime episode, we talked about there was a title I could not remember that was so good and I remembered it. And uh, it's my first one for my stack today. The book is called The Poisoner's Handbook, Murder and the Birth of Forensic Medicine in Jazz Age, New York by Deborah Blum. That um, sounds like such a good title already. Like I'm so I'm already invested. You ha- you have me at jazz age, right? It's such an amazing time because you've got it, it. Basically, where it starts is you had this really corrupt system in New York, and it was used nationally. Or you had coroners, you didn't have medical examiners, and mm-hmm. the coroner was an appointed position, so they didn't have to be anyone with medical background right so did they get yeah. voted into that position was it just like the likable person you can you could actually was just a, get like it was a good job interview too right it wasn't even that so you would have the the mayor that would get elected and then they would go i like you you're not gonna rock the boat i owe you a favor oh my gosh oh, i shoot. i'm gonna i'm gonna put you <laughs> in this position and you get to do this and awesome. it was at one point she lists all of the different Uh, people who have actually held that position and it was they didn't have any kind of medical background they were shop owners they were I mean there was no medical anywhere um but it was they had a favor and so they would get appointed and it meant that if you were poisoned if you were committing murder around then you were probably going to get away with it if it looked scandalous that you committed suicide you would pass some money to the coroner and they would change that certificate so it would be something else and wow oh yeah so it was really hinky and there was this big push for we need to do this we need to make this change we need to shift and make things better and eventually that did happen And it happened in 1918 with the appointment of an actual chief medical examiner. His name was Charles Norris, and he was actually the second interviewer. So the the mayor, it was actually passed that this needed to happen because something happened that was really embarrassing to New York. And this was how they, you know, the lawmakers were like, fine, we're going to fix it. This is what we're going to do. But the mayor didn't like it. So he Mm. picked the second choice, which was Charles Norris. And he went in and was like, cool. He was fairly affluent going in. The mayor cut his budget significantly to be like, yeah, you can make do with this. They left him a bunch of broken furniture, but no lab equipment. So Norris went and bought his own lab equipment because he had a lot of money. And he was like, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this right. He hired a very famous toxicologist named Alexander Gettler, who set up processes. A lot of the processes he pioneered are still used today, a hundred years later. That is awesome. Yeah. They talk about all these different cases. The chapters are broken down based on compounds. So they're based on arsenic. They're based on wood alcohol because you have prohibition happening in the background of this. And then you have the Great Depression happening in the background of this all of it playing factors in all of this. And you have the medical examiner who's very anti-prohibition because it kills people. Yeah. Like they're putting wood alcohol out there and people are dying. And he actually tracked the number of alcoholic deaths happening after that. And it, it definitely increased after prohibition. So he's part of the big push to get it rolled back because he's like, look at these statistics. It didn't work. Yeah. You're making Um, things worse. Yep. You have a particular poisoner that they talk about early in the book who Alexander, Alexander Gettler actually testifies in favor of saying, no, no, no. See, this didn't happen because this is why X, Y, Z, why there's 
there's arsenic here. And it comes back to haunt him later because he got a murderer off. Oh no. Yeah. So the the layout is really, really good. It is a tiny bit dry. I, I liked it better when I read it versus listened to it. The narrator does a fantastic job, but I skimmed faster in some parts where it got a little dry. It's a really, really good book. It's really fascinating. And it really goes into the history of all of these different things and how it was really kind of treacherous living in the early 1900s. So many good stories could kill you. So yeah. many good stories come from that time period. Yeah. It's true. So I many mean, good things. <laughs> One of the chapters talks about the uh, illumination gas they used to light up your house and how many people died from accidents from that. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. So it goes into how they had to, you know, man. Oh, yeah. You just you just run this test to see if they were poisoned by arsenic. Okay, that's cool. But how did they develop that? And this goes into a lot of that. It goes into the radium girls. There's a chapter about radium. I love the radium girls. I do, too. So such a good book. Yeah. If you've read that one, then you've side recommendation. Gettler. Yeah. So because Alexander Gettler is the one that did some of the the photograph tests with the bones to see if they were irradiated. That was him. Oh, oh cool. okay. Yeah. So just kind of like tying that into some some other books there. So it I was it's a it's a really good book though. Highly, highly recommend it. If you're a little worried about it being too dry, PBS's American Experience actually did a documentary on it that came out in 2014 nice which is how i found the book was because i'm like well clearly i have to find the book if i watch this documentary so that's that's the first one in my stack highly recommend it you said if you like it a little bit more spiced up this might not be for you um there's another book by deborah blum i brought up before called the poison squad Mm. and that's one of the things people complain about too is it's a little dry well that was where i heard that name that's where i heard that name before i was trying to figure it out Yep. And my mom, I think, is currently reading that book right now, thanks to you. Uh-huh. So that's why that name is yeah. so familiar. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I like so her. I... She's really good. It's just she's very detail oriented and really, really gets into the chemistry. Yeah. And I do a better time reading that than listening to it because mm-hmm. I struggle yeah. with chemistry anyway. So, right. Makes sense. Yeah. I am wondering if part of it is finding people that are good at writing with this type of content because I've read a book that I did not put on my list because I couldn't get through it because it was too dry and it kept bouncing back and forth on the timeline it didn't it didn't follow any kind of chronology that made it sensible it was called Mm -hmm. the education of a coroner and it followed Mm -hmm. the life of a coroner who was put into the position of a coroner in Marion (laughs) County and he was a job interview which is why I brought that up earlier because he wasn't elected into that spot he was appointed yeah the word that you said was very specific (laughs) yeah his stories are interesting they just bounce back and forth because the guy that was writing him down didn't not my favorite yeah but I but he also had no medical training except for he became a coroner after he became embalmer oh okay so he started work in a funeral home and he learned how to do all of the embalming techniques and he learned how to do all of the morticianing that <laughs> is required morticianing. to get a body oh, sure. prepared for <laughs> funeral services. It's not a, a verb, but I'm making it a verb. I, I'm wondering as you're talking about this, because you're saying it was really good, but it was dry. I'm wondering if that's an issue with people that want to tell their stories and they have really interesting stories to tell. Mm hmm but they don't always tell it in a way that you can create a strong narrative out of. You know, as I Probably. look at as I look at these true crime books, a lot of them I'm starting to notice trends that they're written by journalists. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. They're written by professional writers. Not professional right. authors all the time, but professional writers. And the ones that are successful are written by people who know how to write and know how to entice and draw, entertain an audience. Yeah. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. I think something with Deborah Blum too is she writes it very, it's from a more historical perspective and framework because this is organized by years. Each section is a set of years. And then okay. it's also highlighting one of the poisons that they, mm. like one of the, the advancements or one of the high, like highlights, so the word highlights, right. like people are dying, <laughs> right, right, right. but it, yeah. it's the one that's the most prominent in that section. So for the cases that they highlight from that time period, are the ones that do the heading for it. Right. So how many years does it cover? Oh, I do not remember off the top of my head. It goes all the way crime the number prohibition. Three. True crime True number three. We'll find yeah. the answer to that question. Yeah. It, it goes it's all the, the sequel way. to the sequel. 
<laughs> well, you do see the end of prohibition. So you, you do go, I would like, I want to say it goes through the 1930s. So it starts in the early, early 1900s and covers up until Norris retires and Gettler retires. So cool. it, it's, it's part history and part biography and part chemistry and part true crime. Nice. So it's a lot. There's a lot in here. Yeah, that does sound like so, a lot, but it sounds like a lot of good things. Yeah, but you're but saying not, that you recommend reading it rather than listening to it. Yeah. That's that also a good thing I'm to doing, know. It could be I'm doing other things while I'm listening and that's why I struggle with listening to it too. Yeah, but the thing is um, the people that do audiobooks usually do it so they can do other things while they listen. Right. And if we get that warning of, hey, this is a good book, but you can't do other things while you're doing, while you're also listening to this and reading it with it. That's yeah. an important thing to know. It is. It is. And the narrator is lovely. They do a really nice job voice wise. But I think something else we have to think about too is the second book in my stack is written more novel style. And I that could that. be why it's such a contrast. So that was my first one. My second one is called Nothing But The Night. It's by Greg King and Penny Wilson. It is brand new. Like brand new, brand new, just came out in September of 2022, brand new. And it focuses on anyone who's done anything with listening with uh, true crime or writing about true crime. The big ones would be, you know, Serial with Adnan Syed. And then you also have Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. And they are, this one's another, I, this was when I was on my jazz kick in Chicago. Apparently I've been reading a lot of jazz time books because it, it, like Annie said there's a lot of really interesting stuff that comes out then right it was um, a very fascinating time period I'm really glad I didn't was, live through it right it's great to look back on yes but not to have lived in so it focuses on the entire story of Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb they were 18 or 19 year old boys in the early 1900s and they killed it, it was Nathan Loeb's cousin who was 14 Oh, yeah. You could argue that it was probably the first affluenza case because they were very rich. You also had some anti-Semitism going in there because they were both from affluent Jewish families. So that was kind of running in the background. And they actually bring that up in this book, which I, the little bits I've read of this story, that has not actually come up in the things I've read. Hmm. But this author points that out going through a lot of the newspaper articles and everything you see. Oh yeah, there's some anti-Semitism going on here too. And I love when an author can pull in those patterns and identify them as they're weaving the story together so that you can mm -hmm. see it too. And they're not saying, you know, look at me and how great I am that I piece this all together, but they're going, you know, here are these patterns and these themes. And it looks right. like this is what, you know, this is part of the problem. Yeah. I'm sure these and authors pick the stories because there are those side things that they can yeah. pull in, that they're also fascinated by the story. For sure. Yeah. And if they weren't part of it, then they can pull in things that they find interesting also. And I think it's been glossed over because you have, it was also a family member and it was between basically, you know, three Jewish families. And so I think a lot of other places are like, eh, that's not really a relative thing, but it is a relative thing because you have, you know, everything that's happening in Europe at the time, you have, you know, the rise of the Nazi regimes happening. And then you also have this happening. And so you have all of the, the national news that are covering it is focusing on that. Right. Um, even if it wasn't relative to the actual crime itself, that is what's going on around, around right. the time. So you have, but you have these two young boys that, you know, are very, they've been given everything. They were, you know, put in school early. They, you know, one of them was one of the youngest people to graduate from his college. He was 19 when he did this. Wow. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, it is. But the emotional, emotional intelligence maybe quite wasn't there. And you also have that, you also have the backdrop of if there was some homophobia going on too, because Richard Loeb was very clearly gay. Mm. There's a lot through, going on in here. Oh yeah. There's, you just keep bringing more things yeah. in. You just and keep just, unpacking mm -hmm. additional yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and most of the times people talk about, oh yeah, it was these two boys and they were really rich and they were bored. And so they did this because they wanted some cheap thrills and really with King and Wilson, they actually went through and looked at it and put modern forensic techniques and modern psychology into it and looked at old journals and old newspapers and all of this stuff and went, you know, I don't think it was that simple. 
Yeah. And you've got, you know, one of them is just, he's my friend and I want to do these things, but we had this rumor that we were gay, but we weren't, but we kind of were, we experimented. And the other one is like, no, I'm not like, there's a lot of that. Cause that was illegal back then. Right. And there's a whole other level of, you know, um, like psychological punishment, and everything else. So it was really, really interesting. And I listened to this one as well. The narrator is Armando Riesco. He did such an amazing job because it almost sounded like you were listening to someone in the time period from the region reading it to you. So, but it was really, really masterfully told. I really enjoyed it. It's dark. Clearly it's dark. It's a child murder. Let's just throw that out there. But it also goes into rape. It also goes into child abuse and violent sex. So if you are are triggered by any of those things, this is not a book for you. But if you're cool with that, not cool with it, but if it's not going to bother you, <laughs> let me try that. <laughs> if you're cool with that, cool with these horrible things. Um, if those are not going to trigger you, then this is a then this is a a, a good a well written book. It is okay. well written. Thank you for um, all the trigger warnings. I appreciate yeah, that. There's that a lot was, in there. It is. Well, it's it's a lot heavier of a story, and I you, you hear about it, and you're like, yep, it's those things, but there's so much to it. And he, they really, really go in depth. You also kind of get a feel of, uh, there might be a little bit of infatuation with one of them that almost feels like Truman Capote's in cold blood. So, because he was really, really, he had an attraction to one of the killers in that particular story he told. And you kind of feel like that when you're reading this book, just a little bit, um, where you're like, oh, okay. So it doesn't take away from it, but it also kind of makes you question how objective the authors are being when you have that very clear undercurrent that's there. I don't know if they meant to put it there, but you can, after a while, you're just like, oh, I get it. Okay. Maybe there's Mm. something a little extra. So, but it's, it, it's really good. They took a story that's over a century old and basically remastered it like an old black and white film with full color. That's really what it felt like. So if you're into the historical stuff, again, this one was, you know, 1920-ish, I think is when the murder happened. So I should know that off the top of my head, but I don't because my brain doesn't hold on to everything like it should. But it is, it is a century old story. It is, it was considered the crime of the century at the time. And clearly we're still talking about it. The century was only 20 years old at that point. (laughs) True. There was a lot of room for improvement. Growth mindset. So that's, those are my those are my two for my stack. Sydney, what do you have? I'm going to start with my favorite of the two. Not saying that the other one isn't good. Just saying as you I have to pick was, one. Yeah. As <laughs> I was reading, I found that I was really, really intrigued more than I thought I would be by Mindhunter. It's, I love the cover for that book. It, it, I love it too. It's a Rorschach inkblot that's made to look like a face. I just looked at that book when I was trying to come up with books because I don't read true crime. And I thought that's not for me, but I do like the cover. It looks really dark. The cover makes it look. I mean, there's a screaming face in the middle of it. I thought that is not, that is not for me. This is not nearly as dark as you think it is. Really? Really? So it, uh, it's It's co-authored by John Douglas and Mark Olshaker. It's the life of John Douglas and Mark Olshaker is the writer. So it's kind of like a biography. Yes. And it follows the career and life of John Douglas. So this book absolutely had my attention from the very first page. The narrator, I read parts of it and then I listened to parts of it, depending on what I was doing, because I I kept finding that I needed to know what was happening next, even if I didn't have time to sit down and read. So I jumped onto the library app and found the audiobook so that I could listen when I couldn't read. I love that. And the narrator did an incredible job, but the book was absolutely gripping from the very first page. It, because it's following John Douglas's life, it tells stories about the serial killers or serial rapists or arsonists that they are profiling and trying to take down. So you do still have those detailed identifiers of what they did and how they did it because it leads to how they profiled them. So it's an important detail. But it doesn't get so graphic as to be dark and gritty because it's not exactly it's not following one specific serial killer and how they went through their their day. It just kind of states it 
and then they state how they caught him. And so it's not nearly as dark as you think it's going to be. It's really, really fascinating. So he okay. is the mind hunter. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. He's, he's, so, he's the one who, yeah, I, I yeah. Got it. Yeah. See, the cover made me not think my book. that <laughs> it's going to be this like psycho killer, you know. Right, right, right. Going into people's so, minds. Here we go. But that's not what it is. Interesting. So he talks a lot about the cases that he worked up profiles on. He became one of the FBI's literal handful of people that were interested in behavioral science. And when Hoover was still in charge of the FBI, he was like, absolutely no behavioral science. That's bunk science. I don't want it. I don't want any part of it. And when he and his iron grip were no longer part of the FBI because of his death, (laughs) things started to progress forward and they started examining how they could try to catch criminals faster and more efficiently. They started making strides. Right, right, right. You know, yeah. (laughs) Wow. And so it goes through and he talks about, you know, we did this and this technology wasn't available at this time. So this is how we got to this conclusion. And they talk about, you know, we didn't have DNA at this point because it's the early 80s and the technology wasn't perfected yet, but we did this. And so they explained or described the techniques without without losing some of their objectivity, I should say. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I mean, obviously he's still telling the story, so it's very much from his perspective. But I really liked, as he's explaining his career trajectory, that he explains that when he started with profiling and he got out of field work, he was one of only a handful of agents that ever got to do stuff with behavioral sciences. And at one point, he was the only agent profiling full-time everyone else had academic coursework because they were teaching at the academy and so he had over 100 cases at any given point all across the united states and he was constantly traveling to the point where it ruined his marriage oh i'm sure and it actually nearly killed him so the book starts with when everything kind of came collapsing down and his body was shutting down and he thought he was dying it starts there wow and then it rewinds back and it catches you up to that point and then moves you forward okay cool My favorite part of the book is when he starts talking about his collaboration with two other individuals, one person from the FBI and a psychiatrist, and they got a grant to do an actual study. They went into prisons all over the country and they interviewed serial killers that had been caught before they had become profilers. And before they would go into the interview, they would study the case in complete depth so that the interview wouldn't get derailed. And they wouldn't have the ability to lie as they were being interviewed. And they would say, you know, we want you to be able to tell your side of the story. And they would get them to open up and they would start talking about their life and the crimes that they committed and all of these things that happened. And they started looking at, this is what they said was going on. This is all of these things that impacted their life. And here are the clues from the case that we had, you know, photographs of or details of from the murders that happened and they would look to see how they could work backwards from knowing this information and here's this case file how could we start from here and still work our way back to here and they started doing it to the point where they were scarily accurate mm-hmm. with the profiles they were able to create to try to accurately pinpoint char- characteristics of the unsub unidentified subject as they were hunting them to try to bring them to justice it was my favorite part because it got wow. into the psychology of here's what was happening but here's how we can identify based on these clues that were left because even when they try to cover up evidence that in and of itself is a clue you know as you're talking i'm thinking this guy must be really smart yeah it doesn't sound like he's cocky it just to be right. in a room with someone that smart that's right. that passionate about their what they're doing would just be amazing I love that he constantly kept going back to school to learn more. He kept using his ability to further his education through the use of the FBI so that he Mm -hmm. could keep moving forward. So this grant was actually something he ended up using as part of his dissertation. He talks about a lot of the things that he did after he went and got his master's and how that just kept propelling him forward. And it made it so that he, as he worked his way up through the FBI, he ended up becoming chief in the behavioral sciences area, which he renamed because he wanted to take the BS out of the bureau and so he took behavioral sciences out of the name and it became the investigative (laughs) investigative supports is what he rebranded it as now i wouldn't want to be married to that person because you'd never see him you'd never see him like ever no and he's constantly analyzing what you're doing yeah but sure i would love to be in a room with that person but not married to that person yeah i want to sit and have a a long conversation over dinner 
But then I want to maybe go not. Home. He might analyze how I eat my food, but like I want to, I want to sit and have a conversation. But I'll never hear about it because then we part ways. Right. So that was my first book. It's now a Netflix series. There's also Criminal Minds, which is based on the same premise. So if you're right. interested and you are and you like the book and you want to keep delving into John Douglas's world, there is a Netflix show called Mind Hunter. So it's named the same. And there's also Criminal Minds. Have you watched the Netflix show? I've not. Watched I've the, watched Criminal I watched Minds. The first season. Yeah. Did you like it? I did. Um, I need to watch the second season. I think it it did a nice job. I haven't read the book. I really do need the read the book so I can compare the two but they did mm-hmm. a really good job showing just how little the FBI put into the validity of this and then yeah. how hard how hard they had to fight to go no really look here it is and to show just how twisted people are like the the series season one you can tell is follows following BTK in the background mm-hmm. and it's very clear who it is if you, you know, follow any of the big serial killer stuff. So right. that is not resolved in season one because oh. it's still set in the time when he's killing versus when he was caught, you know, what was it 30 years later? Right. So I'm hoping mm-hmm. that eventually they resolve that, but I don't think they will because I think they only did two seasons and then canceled it. Oh, oh shoot. That's too bad. Yeah. Um, I could be wrong, but the last I heard, they, they decided not to renew it. So mm. um, it was good. It was good. Cool. All right. My second book is significantly lighter, not just in terms of content, but also like there's a significant <laughs> difference between the books. also in size and <laughs> density. Yeah. This next one is a it's a quick read. It's called Confident Women: Swindlers, Grifters, and Shapeshifters of the Feminine Persuasion. It's by Tori Telfer. Nice. It is chunked into types of crime so you have that's kind of cool yes so it's the glitterati or people that do things for the money of it the glitterati i love it (laughs) the seers everyone that scammed people out of money by pretending to be psychic oh okay the fabulists people that were trying to gain notoriety by pretending to be someone else or by pretending to have lineage from someone famous so people that were claiming to be the lost princess anastasia right stuff like that or people that were just trying to get acknowledged or recognition for something that was horrible there's a whole there's a whole chapter called the tragedians and it's people who (laughs) as soon as something horrible would happen they would try to make money and profit off of the tragedy like people claiming to have been in and survived the attack on the world trade center Mm -hmm. yeah and that chapter was really really hard to read it made me infuriating it made me so angry that people would 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 have so little conscience that they would try to profit off of someone's tragedy a lot of people's tragedy Mm -hmm. yeah and then it ends it ends with a, a story of a woman who kind of broke the mold and is just Usually grifters and those kind of women who use their wiles are nonviolent. And the last, the very last person she talks about breaks that mold. She ends up having a relationship with her son. Yikes. Which is disgusting. I know exactly who you're talking about too. Oh no. Um, I know exactly who you're talking about. (laughs) She ends up getting super violent and she gets her son to kill for her. It's, it's a dark way to end the book. I don't know if I would have, I don't know if I would have done that. In those groups, what was she? She was in the last section, okay, which was titled The Drifters. It's people who kept going from town to town. Okay. They scam people and make money and then they hurry and leave. And actually, the last woman, her name is Santi Kimes, and she actually got busted because of a car she wrote a bad check for in Utah. Yep. And I was like, mm, leave it to Utah. Utah to be able to Utah, figure out Utah, someone Utah. wrote a bad check. Yep. So it's well themed it's very much a summary she tells the story without weaving the narrative in as strongly as i feel like she could have everything's quite short mm-hmm. it surface. feels like the structure of a giles milton book i talked about those books last season the you know when hitler snorted cocaine and lennon lost yeah. his brain those books right okay. i didn't love it as much as a milton book for being short summaries it wasn't as gripping but it was still fun to see how she groups all of these different people that swindled people out of millions of dollars 
Mm-hmm. And I like that it has a wide range of criminals and that it was both historical crimes as well as modern day 21st century crimes. So I liked the book. I think that a lot of people will like it because it's really short reads. So you can sit down, read one person for a few mm-hmm. pages and then put a bookmark in and go do whatever else you have to do. So for people who are really busy that don't need an in-depth story, but they're interested in how something happened, this would be a good book for them. Okay. Okay. Do you think this would be a good book for people who don't read true crime? Would this be a good introduction? Or do you think this is a book for people who already know true crime, but a different format? I think this is a great book for people who aren't comfortable with some of the darkness that you find in true crime. Mm -hmm. because this book really doesn't touch on the dark okay until the very last person (laughs) who gets till the very last 10 pages (laughs) until that very last person it's really kind of light and fluffy in terms of true crime like obviously like people still got hurt and stuff still got stolen right but as far as true crime goes this is a great way to dip a toe in Okay. And see if you're interested in stuff and then kind of work your way into some of the the more in-depth true crimes, like those kind of big, long narrative books. Well, couldn't you go from Confident you could Women jump. Yeah. to the stories within it and deep dive into those? Oh, for sure. Yeah. If there was a story that you were really interested in, you could look to see if there was additional books or writings or articles okay. or blogs or podcasts on yeah. that specific person. Okay. So there's and enough there. a lot of there. these are well known. Are they? Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Um, I think my favorite one was uh, one of the spiritualists. It's the two girls that were sisters that basically invented spiritualism. Oh, the Fox sisters? Yes. You're so out of the loop. You guys know all the things. Well, if you read Confident Women, it's okay. I'm going to read this book. I'm going to read this book and then deep dive. It's fine. Um, But the Fox sisters. Weird hobbies, and that's, these overlap a little bit. So. They actually, when they were interviewed later in life, talked about how much they regretted that the prank that they pulled as children became such a big phenomenon that they could not escape from because they then felt trapped within this societal bubble that they had unintentionally put themselves in as children because they were messing with family members. Oh my gosh. It's, they were like what eight and eleven when they started yes, it too. They, they were that they old. were children. They did not know what they were wow. doing, and the repercussions from what happened affected the entirety of their life's trajectory. And now they just can't get away from it. Well, now they're dead, but well, yeah, up until the point where they, yeah. you know, were dead, they couldn't get away from it. But I would, wow. I would bet that people are still trying to commune with the Fox sisters. I was gonna say, you know, maybe it went a little further, holding their seances and uh-huh. pulling out their Ouija boards. Uh-huh. I, I think. I think Harry Houdini got involved at some point because of the Fox sisters. Like it was, it was fascinating. It's nuts. And of course I didn't get a a deep dive because it's a very short book. Right. But if I were to deep dive into any of the stories that I read, that would be the one that I would deep dive into because I find that to just be like, oh, your prank screwed you over. (laughs) Yeah. So Annie, what about you? What have you got going on? Last time, last season, when we did a true crime episode, I admitted that I don't read a lot of true crime. That did not change over the last (laughs) little bit. (laughs) And so as I was trying to come up with books for this, I kind of went to ones that I've already talked about that could double as true crime. And I did not do that. But I am going to talk about the one that I started reading because of our last true crime episode. And if you remember, it was a book about fly fishing in the Victorian era. Oh, right. And thievery. That's right. Mm-hmm. That was your currently reading during that. That chapter. was my currently reading. I finished it. Congratulations. Thank you. I still <laughs> sometimes wonder why I finished it, but that's for a whole different discussion. Okay. I did enjoy it, but just such, such a weird topic. And what was the, what was the name of the book again? Yes. So the title is The Feather Thief. And like all true crime books, there's a subtitle here. Of course, it's not a real true crime book if it doesn't have a really, really long subtitle. That's not a nonfiction book unless it has a really, really long subtitle. No, I That's don't. That's a valid point. I don't know That's why. A valid point. Someday I'll research into that. But the title is The Feather Thief, Beauty, Obsession, and the Natural History Heist of the Century by Kirk W. Johnson. I love that you had to get it out and then take a breath. I did. Because it's so Well, there's long. a lot there. There's, there there's is. a lot there. And it was published a lot in- to unpack. 2019 okay so relatively recent it was relatively recent i think that had 
the events of 2020 not happened, this book probably would have gotten a little bit more buzz, but we all know what happened in 2020. No, for a little what? <laughs> for a little while there, I think people weren't reading they wanted deep dive books. They wanted yeah, fluffy. Yeah. So I think this yeah. one kind of fell. I think everyone wanted fluffy books, but then everyone started a true crime podcast. Yes. And the number of true crime podcasts (laughs) during the pandemic absolutely exploded. It really did. And now we're getting all these movies that were started then and coming out. For sure. So this is a bird heist mixed with Victorian era fly fishing. And that just really sounded good to me. (laughs) Yep. Uh, the crime in the book is the theft of rare bird specimens from the Tring Museum, and that is an outpost for the British, na- sorry, the British Museum of Natural History. So it's like okay. a little annex in another town. This guy had a bunch of money, decided that he wanted to start a museum, was really fascinated by birds, and so he started one. Congratulations for him. Right. He just decided to have a bird museum. And this I mean, sometimes you wake up and you just are like, you know, today I think I'm going to start a bird museum. I have a bunch of money. A bunch of people well, died. I I'm just going to make this happen. Let's go. <laughs> so the museum now is hard to get into. You really have to have a specific reason to go into that museum. It's not just open to the public. So this flautist decided that he wanted to get really into birds. He became obsessed with fly fishing. I think he's got a little bit of neurodiversity going on and got really into fly fishing and found out that there was this museum that had all the specimens, all the skins, which involves all the feathers. Um, Everything's taken out. You know, there's cotton in the eyes and it's just the feathers and whatever thin piece of skin is attached to those. And he stole hundreds of specimens, many of which were discovered by Alfred Russell Wallace, who's a contemporary of Darwin. So we're looking at that time period. These specimens were super old. Okay. Right. Can't be replicated. The birds are extinct. They're protected. Super bright and colorful. Of course. Beautiful. Have to be kept in climate control or else, you know, they'll disintegrate. Wow. So clearly they'd be great for fly fishing. Yes. And remember the Victorian era too was, (laughs) and it goes into this in the book. It was the time of giant hats with feathers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So those hats that we see replicated now using, you know, pigeon feathers that are dyed and things. There were some huge, beautiful feathers that you cannot find anymore because of endangered species and extinct species. The hats probably contributed to that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. When (laughs) they talk about it in the book, when naturalists decided that these birds needed to get protected, the hat industry went way down. Wow. Yeah, it was a byproduct that I was not expecting. There was a little bit of an issue there. Huh. I love when you get to see historical implications. Yes. Like, why, cool. did, the, why did big hats go out of fashion? Oh, because someone birds. decided that Got birds it. are worth saving. Huh. I get it now. Who knew? Yeah. So he went and stole all these skins to take them apart and sell the feathers because there were people who the dark underground feather trade (laughs) um there was a book that he had that had recipes for flies for fly fishing and they used these super tiny super bright feathers from these extinct birds and people were taking birds bird feathers from common birds you know chicken feathers they would dye them to be the right color and cut them to be the right shape and this sure, guy, which... Edwin Risk, said, no, I need the real thing. And so he went and stole them all. Wow. And then that the is... ones that he didn't need, he sold feather by feather or whole skins. That just sounds creepy. It, it was, but also the creepier part of it, honestly, for me, was when they were discussing how these birds were preserved because okay. Darwin and Wallace and other naturalists of the time didn't have the same technologies that we do now. And so There were, you know, cotton in their eyes and just weird things stuffed inside of them. That was creepy to me more so than taking the birds. So what he did. Seeing anything taxidermied is kind of creepy. Yeah. but these To to me personally, I know some people really love it and that's great for them. I just, me personally, I, I, I'm a little creeped out by something dead that's still staring at me. Yeah, me too. It follows me with its eyes around the room. I can't get away. That's why I don't go to Cabela's very often. Yeah. <laughs> and out here we have a place called Shields. 
and it's the same. It's like we have one of those too. Yeah, it's weird. They have like half armadillos going into the ground, and it just it creeps me out. Okay, Armad- so it's like an armadillo butt. Yeah, which then mm. gets me thinking about the taxidermy. It, right, I right, just right. Go weird places. So Edward, sorry, Edwin Wrist uh, got admittance into the museum by posing as a naturalist, and then he memorized, took pictures, cataloged where everything was. And then after a big flute performance, symphony performance, orchestra, he broke back into the museum with some suitcases, filled them up with the birds, and then went back out the window. And he flew the coop. He flew the coop. Oh. He flew the coop. Oh. I don't know whether I'm disappointed that you did it or that I didn't think of it first. (laughs) He did. And they cried. So here's where I started to get really, really angry. I started to get really mad at the museum curators because when they went to go look at what he'd stolen, there was never a question of who did this. Like they figured it out pretty quick, but then it became a question of recovering the skins because they're of such historical significance. And they went in and counted how many skins were missing. And there were hundreds, thousands of skins missing. And he only took like three suitcases. And some of these birds are, you know, hummingbird size, but then some of them were giant tropical birds. Sure. And he couldn't have taken all of those in the suitcases. He didn't have space. Oh, no. I know. So then they started diving into the organization of the museum and how many skins have been missing for how long. Oh, it was so frustrating. There's an underground crime syndicate feathering. And there are still skins out there because they couldn't recover them all because people are so, they just want the original fly. They don't want dyed chicken feathers. And so they hide what they have. And it was just this whole thing. Wow. And as I was reading this, I was finishing up my library degree and cataloging was a really big deal for two years of my life. I know this is where my brain keeps going. And so I got so mad at them. I was so angry at these curators. For, for losing sure. bird skins. It's not even a book or a document. Like, how do you it's lose a, a bird. bird? How do you lose a bird? I kind of want to make a bird brain joke. You can. It's okay. <laughs> That's where I went with this book. It's fine. <laughs> oh, I, I'm going to refrain, but just know that it's there. It, yeah, it, it almost came out. Okay. It's okay. Again, interesting book. It went in a direction that I was not expecting. I'm, I was more expecting this to be about who did it, why did they do it? And instead it was about, can we get these skins back? Why is the fly fishing community so obsessed and secretive? So it it just went a very different direction than I was expecting, but I still, I liked it. It was good. It actually sounds really interesting. I would not have expected it to be that That's not something I would have picked up on my own. Right. Yeah. But and I think I picked it up because I don't usually read true crime. And so it was one again, if you're delving into the true crime world and don't want to read about murder, the death murder. and things. Murder, um, most foul. Right. It was, <laughs> it was pretty good. Oh, I made another chicken joke. <laughs> good job. Thank you. That was unintentional, but I'm still gonna roll. Hey. With it. This is the best it happens. kind. It happens. So then my second book is called The Cold Vanish, and it's Seeking the Missing in North America's Wildlands by John Billman. And Nia, I think you talked about this one. I did. It was on second. my to-read list. It's mm-hmm. on your to-read list. Well, mm-hmm. fun fact, I have the Canadian version. Oh. Yeah. I was looking at the back of my copy today and it said Canadian version. I thought, oh, okay. what are the differences? I have no idea. So I have the huh. fourth Harry Potter book from yeah. Canada. Like, oh. like I have the Canadian version of the okay. fourth Harry Potter book. What's the and difference? And it's mostly typographical. Mm. There's a lot of times okay. where they do italicize with one quotation mark instead of two. Yeah, yeah. So you have, it, it italicizes the dialogue instead of not. Mm. And it, I kid you not, my Harry Potter book, it threw in A's. It's like, how's it going, eh? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. not kidding. <laughs> So I was thinking, why could, why would I have the Canadian version of this book? And then I remembered that I bought it when I was at Powell Books in Portland, Oregon. Okay. And I oh. thought that kind of makes sense. It's pretty close to Canada. Someone might've sold it. Someone might've sold it because they, they sell secondhand books also. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And so I thought, okay, maybe because of the geographics of where I am in the nation, I'll accept it. Cool. If nothing else, it makes for an interesting little side tidbit. It does. It does. Anyway, that's what I'm reading. It barely counts as true crime, but I I think it it does. Is it a true story? Yes. Does it involve something happening that's illegal? Or with, you know, or could potentially be illegal? Could potentially and law enforcement, yes. Then it counts as true crime. Well, fantastic. Thank you. You're welcome. So I'm only a few chapters in, I'm like four chapters in because it's a little bit information heavy. Mm. Sure. There's a lot about the methods in which the park rangers, the police officers, the search teams use to find these missing persons, but it's not overwhelming. There's just a lot of it. Like recently I was following a story of a missing runner in California. This was a couple months ago, I think. And I kept looking at it for updates but the updates were, here's when we're sending the search team out. Here's where we're looking. You know, we mm. scanned these areas. And there was very little update on the actual person and just a lot of what status. the search teams, the status. Thank you. Yeah. So not overwhelming, but it is there. So the book okay. looks at missing persons cases from the wildlands in the United States. A lot in... So is this like just areas that are uncultured or is it national parks or is it- a lot of national parks? Yeah. And a lot okay. of them are in the northern half of the United States because hmm. that's where the main case was in the Olympic National Forest in, uh, in Washington. And so it looks at there's one in the upper peninsula in Michigan, but a lot of them are in Washington and then they go down to Hawaii there's another one, Australia. I think they go to Australia at some point, hmm. but it's following a main case and then some other smaller cases along the way. Okay. Interesting. And okay. it's looking at the people who have gone, who went out on a run, who went on a bike ride, who went on a hike and just didn't come back to their car, didn't come home, didn't check in. And these people, they're experts, right? They're the marathon runner who goes on the same run every day and just one day didn't come back so you know something happened so something clearly happened it's not just oh he wandered off the trail they wandered off the trail there's something else so then what they look at are things like did an animal attack and take off the body did they get dehydrated and fell off a cliff what Mm -hmm. could have possibly happened that was just enough out of the ordinary that they have vanished okay I am curious to know if there's ever any closure Not and me. I know you're only a few chapters in. So when you finish for the third for the sequel, people, yeah, <laughs> as we, as we come back to this, I want to know, because I, I know that I am one of those people. Some people don't care. Some people enjoy that unsolved mystery mm-hmm. because they like it for the sake of the mystery. I am not one of those people. I have to yeah. have an ending, whether it's happy or sad. I have to have yeah. that ending. Well, the title is The Cold Vanish. Right, which is why I'm nervous. So it makes me think there isn't. See, and I'm the other side where if if there isn't an ending, I'm now going to go out and research all of these and follow them until there is. Mm. I like to keep up with stuff like that. So I think that was what made me hesitate to actually dig into this is Mm. I like an ending. Mm. Yeah. I, you know... I like a mystery, but I like to have a resolution at the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... I don't need the resolution. I like well, the, the build up more than the resolution. Yeah. I think some people, and I think Nia, I think you're like me. We like the puzzle of it all, but we have ideas in our head of who, how we think everything fits together and we need to see if we're right. Yes. See, that's what I like. About and maybe these, that's just that... my hubris. Like maybe I just like, I have to know that I'm smart enough to figure it out. And sometimes I'm not. And that's okay too. See, and but... that's why I was drawn to this book and to cold cases of vanished persons in the wilderness to begin with is that the puzzle doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It makes zero sense why this person offered someone else their water. And because they offered them their water, they died. Like, Why would that experience hiker offers someone their water that makes zero sense and then i remember that the body does weird things when dehydrated sure or hypothermic or i don't know a bear has your leg you probably I mean, worry about sometimes water that happens you do weird things yeah and when i the think we just need to call john douglas and be like hey go solve these please <laughs> there you go. here's the case here's the case 
Go, and then the search team it. goes out and they're, you know, I've tracked everywhere that this, this person had possibly gone, but then they just didn't take three more steps. Right. And if you go those last three steps, there's the body. And it just is so completely un not unsolvable, but random. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I picked it up. Plus, I know a lot of the areas they're talking about, which is helpful. That's I know fun. Olympic National Park. I know Solduck Falls. I know Santa Cruz, California. I know a lot of the places they discussed. And for the ones that I don't, like Maui and Australia, there are maps. There Google are. The world is, is that, pretty fabulous. That exists. That, which I appreciate. Yep. So I'm going to keep reading it. And after I finish, if those cold cases have not, if these persons have not been found, I will be looking at them for the rest of my life (laughs) on the internet because I can. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Now it's time for our new trivialities segment. I have a couple of trivia questions for Annie and Nia. We'll see how you guys do with them. Winner gets bragging rights and the satisfaction of knowing random trivia. Are you both ready? Yep. I got comfortable. I am moving my blanket. So I'm not a million degrees. I'm ready. Okay. I think I'm winning from, I think I'm winning from the last one. You are the, you are the current reigning champ. champ. Here we go. Current reigning champ. (laughs) So you're great at trivia, but Nia has the, the background of, she knows nothing about true crime. So So I, I think that your ability to do really good at trivia, no matter what, (laughs) and Nia's true crime knowledge. I think this is a good head to head pairing. I'm excited to see what happens. Oh, I feel, I, I, Yeah. I'm not feeling confident, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> Trivia isn't right. about confidence. It's just about showing up. Fair enough. I like it. I like it. It's whoever says it faster, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's get trivial. You will get two points if you can call out the answer without needing an option. If once I list the multiple choice point goes down to a single point value, but winner still gets that point to go towards the win. There are three questions. Here we go. Three Question- questions. Three questions. Question number one, the son of Sam is a serial killer, but he was also a serial arsonist. How many fires did he record himself setting? Okay. I do know who son of Sam is. I do know the time period, but I did not know the arson part. So I have no idea. Thank you. Mind Hunter. (laughs) All of these, all of these quiz questions come to you courtesy of mind Hunter. Okay. Uh, I think I don't know about you, Annie, but I definitely need the multiple choice. Oh, yeah, I need the multiple choice, too. Okay, then let's do it. Was it A, 537? Was it B, 666? Oh, my gosh. Was it C, 1,411? Or was it D, 2,222? I'm going with 666 because this is true crime. Uh, That is incorrect. Dang it. I'm going to go with C. C, 1,411 is correct. Nice. All right, Nia, you are, you have one point and you're in the lead. That is a lot of fires. That is a lot of fires. And those are the ones recorded. Yes. And it was in a small enough period of time that it ended up coming down to almost 500 fires a year. That is so many. Yeah. Because of the time period in which he Uh set them. Man. Yep. That's more than one a day. Yeah. Question two. Here we go. Question two. Which serial killer was found to have volunteered at a suicide prevention hotline? Ted Bundy. Jeffrey Dahmer. It was Ted Bundy. Dang it. Good job, Nia. You were at three points. I can't believe I knew that. (laughs) (laughs) I knew that also. I knew that. Jeffrey Dahmer was a great guess. At least I said a serial killer. No, you... Love, you did. I love okay. the confidence. No, I knew it was Ted Bundy because I just listened to something about that. I think they reference it on the one of the new documentaries that's on Netflix. They do. <laughs> I'm so mad. All right. Okay. Final question. What is the real name of the son of Sam? I know Berkowitz. His name is Berkowitz, but I can't think of his first name. You're right. It's David Berkowitz. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> I I'm so I'm so that's impressed. Like, you got I'm so proud. Points. Four points. No, well, she, five points. Five. Really. But four yeah. for just calling it out. For Good just job, knowing yeah. answers. Yeah, that's wow. impressive. So the there examples I had, just for the ABCD so that you guys have it, I did David Berkowitz, who's known as the son of Sam. He's also referred to as the 44 caliber killer. Oh, I didn't know that. Because he always used a 44 caliber gun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ted Bundy was option B. 
he is known as the campus killer. Mm-hmm. Ed Kemper, who is known as the co-ed killer and actually is referenced repeatedly in Mindhunter. He actually was one of the biggest wealths of knowledge that John Douglas got. They lastly, Jeffrey Domeray, uh, who was known as the Milwaukee cannibal. See, I would have figured it out. Had you given us all of those, I would have. Oh, I'm sure you would have. I'm sure but you would have okay. been like this one. Good job, Nia. Thank you. The guy they picked to play Kemper in the series Mindhunter, I guess, looks is a dead ringer for the the actual guy. Yeah. Like he he looks just like him. And the guy that the actor they picked is huge. He's this big hulking guy. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I, guess I think I've seen just like him. I've seen all of those BuzzFeed lists where it's, you know, the real life people and the how uncannily the actors that play them got their bodies to look. So, yeah. All right. Well, Nia, you are now the reigning champ. You have dethroned Annie. We'll see Congratulations. Last, though. <laughs> Dang it. That's okay. I, it just goes to show I really, really don't know true crime. Yes. I'm not I say I don't know it. I'm. I'm not a big, like, I don't really read too much about Bundy. I know almost nothing about Son of Sam. Yeah. It's just. All I know is that he always shot people through the woman side, air quotes, of the car. Because he would go to. Mm, That's right. Like, lookout points. And he Mm -hmm. had an issue Mm -hmm. with women. And so he would always go up and he would shoot both of them through the the passenger side of the car. Yeah. A lot of his people, a lot of his victims lived. Which is how he got caught. Because, yeah. Yikes. Because he would walk up, shoot both of them, and then walk off. And so some of them lived and some of them didn't. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. Let's jump into talking about what each of us are reading right now or we're picking up next. Nia, why don't you go ahead? So I've been reading a lot of heavy stuff lately, clearly. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to mine. It's called The Peach Keeper. It's by Sarah Addison Allen. Um, my cousin just recommended it to me. I uh, recommended the author to me. And this was the first one I could find in the library to check out right now versus I've got a couple more on hold, but this was the one I found I could check out. It's very light and very fluffy. It's supposed to be light and fluffy. The recommendation that pops with Publishers Weekly is Sarah Addison Allen juggles small town history and mystical thriller character development and eerie magical realism in a fine Southern Gothic drama. That sounds great. Yeah. So nice palette cleanser. The book jacket is, it's the dubious distinction of 30-year-old Willa Jackson to hail from a fine old Southern family of means that met with financial ruin generations ago. The Blue Ridge Madam, built by Willa's great-great-grandfather and once the finest home in the walls of water, North Carolina, has stood for years as a monument to misfortune and scandal. Willa has lately learned that an old classmate, socialite Paxton Osgood, has restored the house to its former glory with plans to turn it into a top flight inn. But when a skeleton is found buried beneath the property's lone peach tree, long-kept secrets come to light, accompanied by a spate of strange occurrences throughout the town. Thrust together in an unlikely friendship, united by a full-blooded mystery, Willa and Paxton must confront the passions and betrayals that once bound their families and uncover the truths that have transcended time to touch the hearts of the living. Oh, that sounds yeah. fun. You'll have to let us know what you think. I will. What are you doing next, Sydney? I just picked up The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Kara Robertson. And I'm only one chapter in, but so far I'm liking the writing style. You get at the very beginning, there's a listing of everyone who's involved and it describes their role so that you have this index at the beginning of the book to explain how everything comes together because there are a lot of names okay and it gets to the point where the names are a bit overwhelming but i like when books do that i i agree i think then i can ignore it if i want to and i can go back to it if i need to exactly again i'm only one chapter in but it has already like the crime has already occurred and it's getting ready to set the stage for how they're going to start solving the murders of her stepmother and father. I always heard the nursery rhyme that it was her mother and father that she killed, but it was her oh, yeah. stepmother and her father. Right. Okay. And there were not 40 wax. No. <laughs> there were there were 10 on her father and 11 on her stepmother. That doesn't rhyme but as well though. Yeah, I was going to say doesn't. but 40 makes for a better song. <laughs> 40 makes for a much better rhyme. Annie, what about you? So I'm going to finish up 
and continue and then finish up uh, The Cold Vanish. It'll take me a while, but that's okay. I want to finish it and I will. And then I am picking up Thunderstruck by Eric Larson, which is another, you know, two point two things happening at the same time in history. One is a murder, one, or they're, they're not always a murder, but one is a tragedy and one is a technological marvel. And how are those two things happening at the same time? And he does so this so one well. is looking at, I think, the building of ships or the innovation of ships and then wireless information processing, like wireless communication. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, but I'm going to be yeah. listening to it on audio. So it should be. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm trying to remember if I listen to this one or not. I've listened to some of his on audio and they're so good. They're good both ways. This one came out in like 1995 or something. So it's not one. It was a new title to me. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of it before. Oh, okay. And I've heard of okay. most of his books. So yeah, we'll see how it goes. Right on. Okay. All right. Thank you, Annie. Friends, thank you for listening to this chapter of the book stack. As we sign off, we'd like to leave you with some food for thought, and we'll see you next time for our Halloween special. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Bookstack Trio and follow us at Bookstack Trio on Instagram and Facebook to see a full listing of the books mentioned in our stack. If you read a book from our stack, let us know what you think on social media. You can also find us on our website at bookstacktrio.com. He loses his power when we know his face. Michelle McNamara, I'll be gone in the dark, one woman's obsessive search for the Golden State Killer.